0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast. This time, Boris Johnson, Brexit, Rwanda, and the Northern Ireland Protocol. As we'll hear, these things are all connected. Before anything else, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, a brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hadeep Matharo, and we'll be hearing from Hadeep shortly. When you take out a subscription to the Byline Times, you're supporting some of the best independent journalism around. We don't have a wealthy proprietary in the background pulling our strings so we can report without fear or favour. So please do subscribe if you can. You get details of how to subscribe at our website, bylinetimes.com, and if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Now, this sounds like a riddle for the ages. What links Boris Johnson, Brexit... Rwanda and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Don't worry, it's not as difficult as it sounds. The Protocol is the trade deal struck by Johnson with the European Union when the UK left the EU. He called it oven-ready. Now it seems half-baked. The Protocol was designed to prevent a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. This would have breached the terms of the Good Friday Agreement that secured peace in the North. But the price of achieving that was to leave Northern Ireland in trade terms, effectively part of the EU. Since we're not in the European Union, there has to be a trade border somewhere, even if it's an invisible one. So now it's in the Irish Sea, something Johnson said would only happen over his dead body. That hasn't pleased Northern Ireland Unionists, or indeed some Conservative MPs, so the Prime Minister has introduced the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill that would see the UK effectively rip up the deal. The EU says that's illegal. So where does Rwanda come into all this? Well, the government is also upset that its plan to deport asylum seekers to Africa was scuppered by the European Court, which upholds the Convention on Human Rights. Now, the government, urged on by some of its backbenchers and right-wing tabloids, has hinted that it might quit the Convention on Human Rights. But unfortunately for them, the convention underpins the Good Friday Agreement. As the Liberal Democrat MP Alan Carmichael put it, the government is threatening to leave the ECHR in order to fulfil its Rwanda policy, but the UK cannot leave the ECHR without breaking the Good Friday Agreement. They are mutually exclusive. It is, to put it politely, a muddle. We're joined by Byline Times editor Hadeep Matharu, as I mentioned, and also by John Kyle, an Ulster Unionist party councillor in Belfast. Uh, Hadeep, firstly to you, it is a muddle, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Adrian, you've done a really good job, I think, of summarising it all in in very clear terms. It it is. It is a muddle, and... You know, it's just it's just to take a step back as to, to where we are. I just think it's incredible. I mean, we've had in one week all of this stuff about the Northern Ireland Protocol, again, coming to the fore. Now with Rwanda, uh, these suggestions that we could leave the ECHR, which has been sort of on the cards for a while. The government's been talking about. You know, British judges need to be deciding on our own laws, our own rights, very much been part of the wider Brexit narrative. But these these points have conflated uh, in, in recent weeks, as you've pointed out. And for me, the really... know big thing again stepping back from all of this is when did we become a country a government uh, for which the law is something that you not only can choose to you know opt into if you want to or change uh, but but not only that but weaponize you know when did the rule of law not only at home but also in terms of our Uh, international obligations, when did that become something that it's fair game and normalized to weaponize and politicize? Uh, And we saw that the Law Society of England and Wales today, which is the body which represents lawyers uh, in this country, spoke out against Boris Johnson's uh, attacks and his government's attacks and the cabinet minister's attacks on lefty activist lawyers who are trying to get in the way of the things that the government wants to achieve. So uh, it is really complicated. I think it is really an unprecedented time because, uh, as we've said before on, on this podcast when I've appeared on it, uh, Britain has the mother of parliaments. The whole point about Britain was um, its rule of law uh, has been so so second to none, and it's something that we apparently exported around the world. So it's really interesting to see now what's happening in this country.
0: Yeah, and of course, the we saw law-breaking during COVID, 126 fixed penalty notices issued to mm. people working in and around Downing Street, including the Prime Minister himself. So very little regard for the law in that instance. And now very little regard for an international treaty mm. the UK has signed. And Simon Coveney, Ireland's foreign minister, has said that countries around the world will take a dim view of britain it is if it is perceived to be a country that cannot be trusted in terms of its international obligations
1: yeah it's really interesting that you talk about party gates as well adrian because you know that in itself isn't is is not actually an isolated scandal because, as you say, it's about law-breaking and whether it's on that level of the parties that were held in Downing Street or when it comes to the ECHR, uh, you know, the Good Friday Agreement, the Northern Ireland Protocol or Rwanda, what we're seeing is very much that law-breaking that's at the heart of the Johnson government actually playing out on on a national and international level. And, you know, it's really interesting that, also, the rule of law is meant to be something that sits above politics. You know, We're meant to have things that are, that are in our constitution, uh, fundamental values that underpin our political system, like the rule of law, which aren't things that usually have been meddled with or questioned or weaponized. And that's what really has been on my mind this week as well, that, of course, the world is aghast at this, looking at what we're doing, because we're essentially saying the law is What we say it is, and if we don't like that, we're going to change it or go our own way. And I think in this country, whether it, you know, we've had Lord Guyte, who's the independent, was the independent advisor on ministerial uh, standards to Johnson, essentially his ethics advisor, who's resigned tonight. And, you know, like. When it comes to the ministerial code, Boris Johnson has already rewritten the forward of that in the wake of the Sue Gray report to say that, you know, ministers who don't, uh, who break some sort of standards expected in public life will no longer be compelled to resign. And so my question is, what, what do we have in our system which genuinely sits above politics now, whether that comes to the conventions and norms of politics that it's always been expected prime ministers will stick to or the rule of law? You know, and I think that just one last point I'd make is, you know, Donald Trump, <laughs> even Donald Trump couldn't come into power and change, suddenly abolish the U- U.S. Constitution or the Supreme Court or say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna recognize the Supreme Court and the fact that it has uh, a certain role to play uh, in looking at laws. Even he couldn't do that because the U.S. Constitution is something that absolutely sits above politics. The only thing in this country that sits above politics, we're told, is, is the queen. So I don't see how that helps us, given our current juncture.
0: Mm -hmm. It's perhaps uh, helpful for the government as well in that there is, I think, a confusion about the European Convention on Human Rights because it has the word European Mm. at the start of it. I think many people assume that it is linked to the European Union, and it is not. And Britain's signing of the uh, European Convention predates our membership of the EU.
1: Yes, because we're exactly Adrian because we're a member of the Council of Europe uh you know the European Convention on Human Rights came out of uh the post second world War era where we saw the genocide of the Holocaust. Churchill was very much part of the formation of those laws and rights that came out of what happened in that conflict and Yeah, I mean, again, the confusion, the deliberate conflation between EU judges and the ECHR, uh, which are completely different bodies and have a completely different genesis, uh, is something that helps the government and helps it in its weaponization for cultural war ends. All of these questions around the rule of law. In in the last week, it's still on our digital front page on our website, uh, Boris Johnson's second cousin, Annika Campbell, who lives in America, uh, she got in touch and said she wanted to publish an open letter, which we have done on Byline Times to Boris Johnson. The main reason she wanted to do that was because she was just aghast that Boris Johnson's grandfather, her uncle, Sir James Fawcett, uh, was a distinguished human rights barrister. His whole career was spent uh, looking at these issues. For 20 years, he was a member of the European Commission for Human Rights. For half of that time, he was its president. That body turned into the European Convention on Human Rights, which was then incorporated into uh, British law through the Human Rights Act. So she just couldn't believe that the the life's work of his grandfather, Boris Johnson, was now dismantling. But again, it all, it's the... Thing I find really concerning is it's not really about policy. This is about politics and culture war politics. You know, if this was really about well thought through policies uh, that was you know strategically uh, carefully looked at, we wouldn't be in the position we're in now. Either when it comes to Northern and Protocol or Rwanda. So it's very hard to conclude that this isn't about politics. Is it, that this isn't about culture war talking points, red meat for the tabloids, and rhetoric and iconography for the Johnson government. And that should be, that is really concerning.
0: And John, for you in Belfast, this is a a really important issue. Just try and explain to people who live in other parts of the UK and perhaps in other parts of the world who are listening to us, why the Northern Ireland Protocol is so important in Northern Ireland.
2: Uh, Well, Adrian, um, the Northern Ireland Protocol on one level can be viewed as a trade agreement uh, a way uh, uh, to handle uh, the the UK's uh, exit from the European Union while protecting the relationship between Northern Ireland and and Southern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. Um, however, it is more than just a, a trade agreement. Uh, because it's resulted in uh, an Irish sea border, it does um, strike to the heart of the identity of unionists, unionists who see themselves as British, uh, whose whose aspiration is to remain a part of the United Kingdom, who see themselves very much committed to the United Kingdom, find that now there is a border inside the United Kingdom, which is between them and the rest of Great Britain. Now, now that is a very emotive issue, it's a very difficult issue, it's a very uh, uh, unnerving uh, development uh, And the Good Friday Agreement, uh, I mean, the, the genius of the Good Friday Agreement was that it addressed the aspirations uh, and, and uh, cultural identities of, of both communities uh, within Northern Ireland, creating a balance so that those who, who saw themselves as Irish and who looked to the south of Ireland and, and who identified themselves with the Irish nation were able to, to have to, to continue to be Irish and to to move freely between Northern Ireland and the south of Ireland, uh, wh- while those who saw themselves as British were able to remain British, identify as British, and were and were a part of the United Kingdom. So it was it was a carefully crafted, uh, balanced agreement that weighed people's uh, relative uh, aspirations, hopes, and identities. Now with. The introduction of the of the Northern mm-hmm. Ireland Protocol, it preserved that link between the north and the south. The north south arm or, or leg of the of the Good Friday Agreement was preserved, but the east west arm or leg of the uh, of of the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement was significantly damaged. Uh, so, and that that created. Uh, real problems in Northern Ireland, problems for unionists, and, and that's why every unionist politician has said the Northern Ireland Protocol needs to change. Uh, so, so, so the, the Good Friday Agreement, which really brought stability to Northern Ireland to the island of Ireland, um, uh, it has been seriously. Uh, impacted by the Northern Ireland Protocol and that's why to sort of try and brush it aside and say, oh, well, you know, l- l- let's just see how it pans out, let's carry on and, and see what happens when the dust settles that's not going to work because there's been a serious uh, it has serious implications for the stability of the country and for the outworking of the, of the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement.
0: And perhaps because of the compromise brokered through the Good Friday Agreement, which allowed both communities in the North to maintain their identities and their separate aspirations. The people of Northern Ireland voted as a whole to remain within the EU. This is a problem that has been caused by Brexit. But I just yeah. wonder, John, when people look at the the post-Brexit settlement, when they look at the Northern Ireland Protocol, Can Unionists not say, well, okay, this is not ideal. It's not really what we would have wanted because it perhaps weakens our link with the rest of the United Kingdom. But we remain politically within the United Kingdom. We can still fly our Union Jacks. We still have our British passports. Why is it so important to Unionists not to have this invisible border down the Irish Sea?
2: Well, really, because they feel that their British identity has been, their British citizenship has been undermined. So, so, so their, their citizenship is not the same as it was prior to Brexit or prior to the uh, to the Northern Ireland Protocol being implemented or instituted. Um, so uh, so, therefore, goods traveling from uh, Great Britain into Northern Ireland almost, uh, have a customs declaration. Uh, there, there's uh, enormous paperwork. Uh, that there is effectively a trade border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, and I, I think th- th- that does strike at the unionist identity. Uh, th- there is the danger that Northern Ireland then begins to drift and diverge away from the rest of the United Kingdom and, and its trade becomes reorientated. So it is primarily a north-south uh, economy. Rather than an economy that's rooted and embedded within the United Kingdom, so so when uh, when when political aspirations and political identities are so crucial in Northern Ireland, and were the cause uh, of the of the troubles uh, of the civil conflict, uh, if if we undermine. Uh, the balance that was that was achieved through the Good Friday Agreement, then we destabilise the political systems here in Northern Ireland. That's why we have the impasse that we have in the moment. Uh, would, that's why things really have grown to a halt uh, because we're unable to resolve uh, this. Th- 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 what is what is seen as a as a. An imbalance uh, between the two communities, between the aspirations of the, and identities of the two communities.
0: Yeah, and I'm not seeking to downplay that in any way, John. I, I think we've learned over recent years, whether it's through the appeal to British nationalism or English nationalism through Johnson or the appeal to nationalism in the United States through Donald Trump or Bolsonaro in Brazil, you know, we've understood, I think, perhaps more than people of a, a liberal bent might previously have recognised the incredible power of nationalism and of identity. But at a practical level, you'll be aware, I'm sure, that Northern Ireland has, under the protocol, outperformed the rest of the UK economically. It seems as though that the damage wrought to the rest of the British economy post-Brexit, as a result of leaving the European Union, has been less in northern ireland precisely because of the northern ireland protocol okay. yet despite that in a sense the idea of uk or british identity trumps economic self-interest
2: yes i mean I, that's absolutely right adrian uh, i mean there are clearly potential benefits from the Northern Ireland Protocol, there are economic opportunities, there is access to to a huge European market and to to a very significant uh, British market, the fifth largest economy in the world. So there are economic and trade benefits, potential benefits from it. Uh, but there are also these downsides and for people, you know, you, people consider their identity to be more important often than than how many pounds they have in their pocket. Uh, and so so the, 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 they don't want to to um, to be bought off uh, and, and then. Then the other point to make is that is it w- within the the when the economy is performing well the people who benefit most are often those who are who are the wealthiest those who are well off the middle classes those who are at the bottom of the economic ladder those who, who live uh in deprivation or, or in poverty they're the ones who are the last to feel those economic benefits so for someone who's living in a working class estate uh, that, that, that is that is suffering uh, with the cost of living crisis, uh, you know, w- w- with the with the huge issues that there are uh, in terms of the mental health crises that we face, um, uh, with with the National Health Service problems accessing care for them. Um, uh, you know, Their life does not appear to be any better now than it was before Brexit. In fact, it, it appears to be worse. And so to say to them, well, look, the economy is doing better. You know, We've got 1.3% growth and the rest of the UK has got minus 1.3% growth. That is not really going to work for people who are, whose lives are pretty grim and who are struggling to make ends meet in, in, in a, in, under increasing pressure due to the cost of living crisis.
0: But Hadibi, It just strikes me as curious that Johnson has clearly recognised the power of English nationalism and that motivated much of the appeal of Brexit and the harking back to empire that we've discussed previously on the podcast. Yet, he seems either ignorant of... The, the depth of feeling in Northern Ireland or or doesn't seem to care about it because clearly the, the, the sense of unionist identity and affiliation with the UK is, is just as strong, if not stronger, than that English nationalists feel towards their particular part of these islands.
1: Mm. And again, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it, that the full name of the Tory party is the Conservative and Unionist Party. Uh, so you would think that Boris Johnson would uh, have some uh, interest, if not knowledge or foresight, uh, of 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 these problems of the Northern Ireland Protocol and what the Irish would be. Irish sea border has done. But, I, you know, I just I think that, as you say, English, English nationalism or the sense that England is sort of uh, the Conservatives' main territory, where it's seemingly doing quite well, the 2019 general election brought Uh, various constituencies together in the north of England and in the the sort of blue shires in the south. There is this sense that there's a real complacency and uh, a lack of or a a complete recklessness, uh, to be frank, about the union as a whole. Uh, I think... You know, this week, Nicola Sturgeon has said, well, I'm going to make the case for a second independence referendum for Scotland. Uh, it's hard to see how that couldn't be. The case for that couldn't be powerfully made and isn't something that, uh, you know, is justified, to, to be honest, after everything that we've seen in terms of Brexit and the hard Brexit we've ended up in and what Scotland wanted. But in terms of Northern Ireland, you know, I think as has been said and as we can hear, you um, you know that the, the troubles were such a defining period for the united kingdom in its modern political history and it took so much work for the labor government to uh, achieve the northern uh, the good friday agreement and i think the fact that johnson is just so careless uh, and politically expedient in terms of focusing on england that he just doesn't care about the damage that is being caused in a very pro- you know in a very practical sense uh tells us a lot about uh the modern tory party under him and what his priorities are and politically he who he wants to appeal to i also think you know we expect sort of politicians and people in public life to have these amazing hinterlands and to know things about the world uh and and, and history. But I don't always think that's the case, Adrian. You know, I think more and more as I, you know, as we see every day things that go on and, you know, any given cabinet minister who talks about any given issue uh, in a way, you know, in a way that's completely inaccurate or misleading or just just shows, a, you know, just a basic lack of knowledge. Uh, I think that's that's a misconception that actually politicians don't have they haven't spent they're not necessarily experts on everything and they're they're employing experts in the form of civil servants to do that for them but ultimately it stops with them and if we have people who are putting political expedience before anything else even the even the union of the united kingdom this is what we end up with
0: yeah, I'm just. Uh, when Johnson survived his vote of confidence, albeit with many of his backbench MPs opposing him in that vote of confidence, one of the charges raised against him was his lack of strategic brain and you look at this particular moment and it just seems to me that this focuses that allegation right now again to quote the lib dem mp alan carmichael the government threatening to leave the european convention on human rights in order to fulfill its rwanda policy but you can't leave the echr Without breaking the Good Friday agreement, Mm. they are mutually exclusive. And yet this doesn't appear to have occurred to Johnson or if it has, he didn't care anyway. I mean, neither explanation is particularly flattering to him.
1: Yeah, no, it's not Adrian, and I think it's also what is driving him. So, if your first, if your main aim is to come up with, uh, you know, to be strategic and come up with policy that's genuinely good at going to advance your aims as a government, but also uh, keep in check all of these really careful, um, you know, agreements and international dynamics, uh, then you if you know if that's your aim, then what you're going to end up with is, uh, you know, rigorous policy um which um, people might not agree with, you know, politically from all sides of the spectrum, you might not agree with it politically, but you could agree that it has been rigorously thought through. But if your main aim isn't that, but if your main aim is to look at what the newspaper headlines are saying, what the rhetoric is that's whipped up around your government, uh, what are the talking points that fit into sort of cultural war narratives that can be amplified, if that's your main aim, then in a way, where we are now in terms of these areas such as Rwanda and the North an island protocol it, it's it's not surprising at all and I think that's that's the point you know the weaponization of these issues um, has been done recklessly. Because they serve a political end, but the byproduct of that is they cause major problems uh, for the UK, not just for Northern Ireland itself and, you know, the tensions and the the, the identity issues there. But just in terms of our standing uh, on the world stage and what it does to our reputation, you know, we're not even keeping to our to the laws that we have made uh you know and if we can't even do that how can anyone around the world think that you know we're the kind of country that they can trade with and do you know negotiate with and uh, uh, you know do agreements with but I, i think it's fundamentally that difference in in johnson's starting point i think it's pure political expediency which is led us to where we are. And the Rwanda policy, for example, you know, I often think, I think there are even polls that show that since the referendum happened, immigration has sort of decreased generally in terms of the public's uh, priorities. You know, they care about the cost of living crisis uh, and how, you know, they're, they're going to make ends meet. Immigration has fallen, you know, da- down the list somewhat. But having the Rwanda policy, even though it wasn't properly thought through, even though we don't it was never properly costed. So the pretty patel, when she announced it, said that she would personally, as a Secretary of State, like essentially vouch for its um its cost. Um, It's you know these policies are designed to amplify issues that arguably uh, are not issues among the public as a whole. They may be to a small section of the Conservative Party's members, the backbenchers, and people uh, generally in the country. But they're not massive issues that are causing big sort of you know that are causing major uh, problems for every every you know for most people's lives every day. And I think that's the point. It's it's very subtle. But this Rwanda policy has massively, you know, disproportionately, again, brought to the fore this notion that there are people trying to come here and take advantage and we need to we need to stop them. And again, the, the sort of hardline approach that appeals to a base uh, of my, a minority of people. And yet it skews everything and leads us to potentially withdrawing from the ECHR, which I think is appalling.
0: Yeah. What's that I hear, Hardeep? Oh, it's a dog whistle, isn't it? i noticed that on, uh, on GB News tonight, you know, almost mm. if Conservative Central Office could have ordered it, I'm sure they didn't. Dan Wooten tonight, mm. big poll running on Twitter, do we need a referendum on leaving the European Convention of Human Rights? And uh, it, it, it's that sense that, that there are people out there who, clearly take their lead from Johnson and who may indeed be feeding into Johnson in terms of ideas and and what passes for a strategy. But certainly people feeding off him and putting out these narratives there. And I'm going to speak to John in a moment about kind of what that means for real people on the ground in Belfast. But clearly Johnson and his government say these things and there are willing messengers only too happy to construe his messages in Precisely the way that he wants it wants them to unquestioningly.
1: Yes, exactly this, Adrian, and that's that's the point. So he he will have his intention of phrasing things in the way he does, coming up with the the you know, political choices that he does, um, but it's what then happens to that. You know, I remember just before um, we had the UN Climate Change Summit uh, in Scotland last November, and Johnson was interviewed and he talked about how climate, the climate emergency really was an important issue, and he, he basically said that the main reason we need to take it seriously is because he made some analogy with uncontrolled migration had led to the end of the Roman Empire. And there were so many column inches uh, dedicated to how that was historically inaccurate, but none really looked at what he was trying to say. And again, it was, you know, the dog whistle that was being sounded. What he was saying was, you don't want lots of people moving around uh, and coming here and causing disruption and and others, basically. Well, we need to, this is a reason why we actually need to do something about climate change. And we know that, and I'm not saying this is Johnson's, this was Johnson's intention at all, but we already know there's a whole conspiracy theory called the Great Replacement, which is prevalent in far-right circles, which is all about how uh, the so-called, you know, the West is being overtaken uh, by migrants from the so-called Global South who are trying to replace white people um, through, you know, through migration and bring with them their own religious laws and all all this sort of thing. And so it really does, you know, these things have consequences. They all seep into the political culture and the society that we're all swimming in and I think that's and and the thing is he just doesn't seem to care it really does just seem to be about his own political survival and the people around him you know Priti Patel all these people who owe Johnson their their careers essentially owe him their their positions in the cabinet Uh, you know they're they're just seemingly being given free reign to, to do exactly what they want and Again, I mean, they just can't, you know, we're just so far, far past the point where anyone can stand back and have a look at the sort of implications of this on our politics and our society as a
0: whole. That's Hardeep Matharu. Hardeep is the editor of the Byline Times. I'm Adrian Goldberg and we've also got Councillor John Kyle with us. John is a councillor for the Ulster Unionist Party in Belfast and we're just talking about the European Convention on Human Rights and what might possibly link Brexit, the Northern Ireland Protocol and Rwanda. Strange as it seems there is a connection. You're listening to Byline Radio or if you're listening on catch-up to the Byline Times and all this is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times which is a brilliant monthly newspaper that Hardeep edits. If you want to support our work in being a a free and fearless independent journalistic outlet then please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. Very reasonable. Only I think £39 a year for a basic subscription and you get all sorts of interesting additional content in the print edition that you don't get anywhere else. So head over to our website bylinetimes.com and there you can find details of how to Subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. It supports Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, Byline TV as well. And I'd also recommend you to check out the Bylines app on Apple and I think soon on Android if it's not there already. It's a brilliant app that opens the world of our Bylines empire to you. So please think about downloading. And it's free, by the way, the Bylines app. Um, John Kyle, you are a counselor in Belfast. So You see how this lack of, or apparent lack of, strategy by Johnson plays out on the ground. And I suppose this is the concern that real people may get hurt. I don't want to over-egg the situation, but as the marching season approaches, is there a a risk that the disagreements over the Northern Ireland Protocol could spill over into violence?
2: Well, instability is never good, uh, Adrian. Uh, and this is a very difficult area because if you begin to uh, talk about potential violence, you get accused of, of either scaremongering or stirring it up. So sure. it is it is difficult. But we it's perhaps worth, worth saying that we went through 30 years of civil conflict of political violence. We had 3,000, over 3,500 people died in the course of that conflict with thousands Uh, that were injured, Uh, it was a very dark time in the history of Northern Ireland and of the United Kingdom and of Ireland. Um, Since 1998, we have had increasingly stable political institutions. The economy has been rejuvenated, Uh, civil uh, relationships have been renewed. So there has been enormous progress. but. Since since uh, Brexit, since the North introduction of the Northern Ireland Protocol, as we said at the start, the, the balance that was achieved through the Good Friday Agreement, the, the just and equal treatment of the identity ethos and aspirations of both communities, as it says, that has been de- seriously impacted and it has destabilised uh, Northern Ireland. Now, the problem, I think, is that, well, if I say to you that there have been no... Serious negotiations around the Northern Ireland Protocol since February. So we have a situation in Northern Ireland where our political institutions uh, are 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 now deadlocked. Uh, they're 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 not functioning. Uh, we have got increasing uh, anxiety uh, about about the economy, about the cost of living. We have got tensions within communities, anger within the unionist community protests about the, about the protocol and we've got a, a we've got a, a prime minister who appears to be disinterested uh, where there's no sense of urgency to deal with these problems and the thing is that there is clear people can see clearly where the solution is, there is a solution to to this impasse. The, I, I, as they talk about, I, I heard Conor Burns, uh, the the the, 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 um, the minister, say earlier on today that the, that the land, the landing zone is clear. All sides agree what needs to be done. And yet there seems to be a disinterest. Uh, there's there's an inflexibility with the European Union and there is disinterest, a casual disregard, it appears, from the British government to deal with what is a very real problem.
0: And John, I'm, I'm not here to defend the European Union, uh, far from it. But the fact remains that the Northern Ireland Protocol was signed by the United Kingdom government. It was part of the oven-ready deal that Boris Johnson himself agreed with the EU. And having signed the deal, it's now the UK, which is unilaterally seeking to rip up the deal. So, yeah, the, I don't know if the EU are being inflexible, but you know th- they may think they're entitled to say, well, a deal is a deal, and, and both sides entered into it freely. What about Johnson himself, though? How do, how is he regarded by unionists?
2: Well, the the difficulty uh, for many unionists is that, is that Johnson gave his word that there would not be an NI border. He said, "If you're given uh, documents to 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 uh, complete, tear them up." Uh, uh, There'll be an, an RC border over my dead body. So he he patently lied about about what was coming, about what he had signed up to, about about what he had agreed. So that I think has a you know really seriously undermines his credibility. Um, I you know uh, the the, the second thing to say is that is that when you are, I mean there is a problem, uh, undeniably a problem within the Northern Ireland Protocol as, it's, as it was negotiated. Now, everybody now agrees that there's a problem. And Mara Sefkovic today made further concessions, significant concessions, recognizing the problems that, that, that Unionists are experiencing. The, the, the American administration recognizes that there are problems. The British government in its command paper recognized that the Northern Ireland Protocol was unsustainable to use David Frost's words. Um, but so yes,
0: Brexit negotiator.
2: Yes, yes, exactly, Lord Frost, the Brexit negotiator. Um, uh, so, 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 given that, um, it, it seems to me that that there is a responsibility on the British government to therefore, uh, to therefore, uh, with good, in good faith, uh, and with honesty, and with clarity, seek some sort of negotiated agreement compromise uh, with the European Union. Uh, It's there. uh, Everybody recognizes what needs to be done. Um, But the way that Boris Johnson has conducted himself has been to has been to uh, cause it. it, it, Nobody can see uh, that Boris Johnson is acting in good faith. Uh, He continually does things that that are provocative, that are that are uh, insulting, uh, that are uh, uh, th- that cause problems in terms of the negotiation. And to have a negotiation, there has to be some measure of trust. You have to accept that, that 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 the person with whom you're negotiating, if they reach an agreement, that they will stick with it. And I think that this is the problem that that level of trust has been absent for some considerable length of time. uh, And it has been, I think, as a result of many of the decisions that have been made by the British government.
0: And you say, John, that there is a solution and that all sides can see. What is that solution?
2: Well, the solution uh, was proposed uh, two years ago by the Ulster Unionist Party. It's green and red uh, roots. Uh, in, into our channels uh, into into Northern Ireland, so that goods that are coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland that will remain in Northern Ireland should be able to travel in without checks or without any customs declarations because they are not presenting any sort of a threat to the to European Union to the to the uh, to the single market of the European Union. Goods that are travelling via Northern Ireland into the European Union will go through a, a red channel and they will they will undergo. Customs declarations, regulatory checks, etc. But but ninety percent of what comes into Northern Ireland uh, is is coming to remain within the Northern Ireland or else to return to Great Britain. So therefore, so therefore, there is there really is logically no need for those for those goods to to have customs declarations um and that that i think is recognized now by by many many people who say there needs to be rigorous implementation of the northern ireland protocol now except that actually that 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 is disproportionate it's damaging uh, it damages uh, the northern ireland's Uh, relations with the rest of Great Britain and so therefore those proposals are very reasonable proposals. They can be implemented. A dual regulatory uh, system has also been proposed and again that would resolve many of the problems. Uh, So so there are are issues there are uh, measures that can be agreed upon that will resolve the vast majority of the problems arising from the Northern Ireland Protocol. In the
0: meantime, uh, I recognise this isn't your party, you're the Ulster Unionist Party, but the other Unionist Party, the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, are effectively holding the government to ransom, saying that Stormont, the devolved assembly in Northern Ireland, cannot resume until the Northern Ireland Protocol issue has been resolved?
2: Well, you see, Adrian, um, I mean, I... Disagree with the Democratic Unionist Party over many things, but the fact of the matter is that they went into the the our, our last election here and they said we will not enter Stormont unless there is a resolution to the problems arising from the Northern Ireland Agreement, Northern Ireland Protocol. Now this is at a time again. I say it once again that the that the British government and the European Union were not engaging in negotiations. Uh, the, Europe, the the Democratic Unionist Party said said said. This has to be resolved. This is damaging to our country. This is destabilising our political institutions. This is this is uh, risking the peace. Uh, so, therefore, there needs to be some sort of resolution. The Democratic Unionist Party uh, received substantial support. Uh, they, 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 they uh, many of their candidates, were returned as MLAs. So, so since they said to the electorate. We will not enter into uh, an executive unless there is unless these problems are addressed. I, I I don't see how they can enter into it. Now, if the British government and the European Union were to reach some sort of agreement over the Northern Ireland Protocol, then then we could resume politics as normal here. Um, so so yes, there is a problem. I think they were foolish to put themselves in that position. We have. We have many things that need to be addressed here by our political institutions. Uh, you know, the, uh, they have ground to a halt. But one has to acknowledge that the DEPs set out their stall. They said we will not enter into an executive unless the Northern Ireland Protocol is resolved. So therefore, I think the onus is on the British government and the European Union to sit down together and to start negotiating. They aren't negotiating. They need to sit down and start negotiating. There's considerable agreement, as Katia Adler said, two days ago, the differences between the two sides are minimal. There's very little difference between them. They need to sit down around the table, begin to negotiate in good faith and reach an agreement. Hmm. That is eminently, eminently possible.
0: Hardeep, uh, before we finish, I just want to talk briefly uh, about, uh, as well as Northern Ireland, about Rwanda and the government's dislike... Of the European Convention and the criticism of lawyers. I know you touched on this a little bit earlier but I don't know about you, I find it a little bit scary that we can have a government that regards inconvenient rulings of something as fundamental as the European Convention as human rights as something that would justify potentially leaving The convention. I mean the the convention is the backstop for all of us, isn't it? And and things like a convention on human rights protect everybody in society, rich or poor.
1: Absolutely. It is really worrying, Adrian, because I think you know, these narratives that we see around human rights, they they have been developing for a while. They definitely got worse in their weaponization and their Sort of, you know, how extreme they are under Johnson and his administration. But they have been going for a while. You know, post nine eleven, New Labour government. There was a lot, uh, you know, there was a lot in the media and in public discourse about terrorism, terror, terrorist rights. You know, the, the fact that they were being prioritised uh, over, you know, public safety potentially because of the Human Rights Act, which is is something that uh, the UK had enacted. There was, you know, so many. Fr- pages full of that in you know the, the you know the war on terror era post nine um, eleven, and and as I was saying that was happening under a Labour government as well. I don't think enough was ever done to actually communicate to the public why we have the Human Rights Act, what the European Convention on Human Rights is, what it came out of, which was, uh, you know, the, the atrocities of the Second World War, uh, if anything, all these narratives and these tabloid headlines have been used by politicians of all stripes, uh, to be honest, uh, to, to, to gain voters and gain support amongst people who want uh, a hardline approach, apparently, to Law and order, but as you say, uh, what we what is missing from that narrative is the fact that you know in a minority of cases, a tiny number of cases, uh, you know the Human Rights Act will have been used uh, by people who are accused of terrorism or you know offences such as those. But in the vast majority of cases, it is ordinary people who can rely on the rights that are enshrined in the Human Rights Act. So, you know, you can, because we have the Human Rights Act, we have certain rights which we expect to be abided by in this country. And if we think that uh, that's not happening to us, that either our own government or uh, sort of an arm of the state is not treating us in accordance with the rights that we have, we can go to the European Court of Human Rights, which has nothing to do with the EU, as we said earlier, and we, have that court who can make a judgment on whether you know we're being treated properly by our own national government and institutions and that is the bread and butter of Human rights law in this country is ordinary people relying on rights to safeguard themselves and their lives. And that is completely missing from the narrative around rights. And I think a big mistake actually was before we even got to, as I said, the quite in some ways extreme and worrying you know era of Boris Johnson way before that we we ne- there was no sort of dialogue with the public about why we have these rights and where they've come from and you know it just i find it so hard to believe really I and mean, i i have a law degree and I the first thing you learn as a student of the law when we when we look at human rights and international treaties and what happened uh you know, during the Holocaust, it's you learn that gen, you learn that the genesis of human rights law, uh, modern human rights law in Europe today is the Holocaust and what happened in World War II. You know, absolutely, that's the first thing you learn. And I always think it's absolutely incredible the complacency and the exceptionalism that we have here that, you know, we'd rather not have these rights. I just cannot, I find it hard to fathom that, you know, it's always better to have these rights so we can rely on them and have a benchmark than not to have them. And of course, the government will argue, well, if we were to leave the ECHR, and sort of get rid of the human rights act we'll we'll introduce our own bill of rights but again the human rights act incorporates the ECHR, which is a you know it's an internationally recognized standard it has a whole jurisprudence you know we call it a whole philosophy and a whole series of you know years and years of judgments and case law around it it's really well developed and so just to leave that and say we're going to do our own bill of rights which again if, if they're if it's authored by this government the aim i doubt will be the, you know, strategic, well thought out policy. Again, it will be a politicized process. So we'll end up with a politicized bit of rights. And I think that would, I just think the fact that Churchill and you know how much the Conservative Party reveres Churchill, the fact that Churchill, you know, was had a hand in some Of that work, and now we're here with Boris Johnson saying, Well, we may just have to leave it so we can send some people to Rwanda. Uh, you know, I just it's so stark, Adrian. It's so stark,
0: Hardeep. Thank you so much for your time, Hardeep Matharu, the editor Brother. of the Byline Times. Thank you very much indeed, as well, to Ulster UUP, Ulster Unionist Party, Councillor uh, John Carlin, Belfast. Thank you, John. Great to speak to you.
2: Thank you, Adrian. Pleasure to speaking with you.
0: Thanks, John. I think it's been a really, really fascinating discussion. Thank you to everybody who has listened. And don't forget, if you do want to support the work of Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast, please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. You'll get details, and it is a brilliant newspaper, by the way, edited by Hardeep. If you do want to take out a subscription, you'll get details at our website, our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Every penny goes into supporting good honest journalism. We'll see you again very soon. Stay tuned to our Twitter feed at Byline Radio to find out when we're going live next. We'll be with you again very very soon. Take care now. Bye bye.